Hi, everyone. You're listening to Radio Cherry Bomb, and I'm your host, Carrie Diamond, coming to you from Newsstand Studios at Rockefeller Center in the heart of New York City. I'm the founder and editor of Cherry Bomb Magazine, and each week I talk to the most interesting women and culinary creatives in and around the world of food. It is so nice to be back. I took a little break and was on vacation in Paris with my family, and it was the first real vacation I've taken in forever. After that, I headed to Atlanta for a Cherry Bomb event and carved out some time to interview today's guest while I was there. Jamila Norman is the founder of Patchwork City Farms in Atlanta and the host of Homegrown, a show on the Magnolia Network. Farmer Jay, as friends call her, is also on the cover of the latest issue of Cherry Bomb magazine. She's one of the most exciting urban farmers in the country. And through her work in Atlanta and on her TV show, she is doing a lot to encourage folks to garden, plant their own food, and take an interest in farmers' markets. I'm so excited to bring Jamila's Cherry Bomb cover story to life. Stay tuned to learn more about this fascinating farmer. If you're looking for the issue of Cherry Bomb with Jamila and friends on the cover, you can subscribe at cherrybomb.com or buy an issue at your favorite local bookstore, magazine shop, or culinary store. All right, and speaking of Atlanta, thank you to everyone who came to our event at Chef Annie Quatrano's Star Provisions. It was the very first live event for our other podcast, The Future of Food is You, and it was a blast meeting so many of you for the first time and catching up with some old friends. Big thanks to Chef Annie and her team and to Kerrygold and Walmart for supporting our event. This coming Thursday, July 13th, I'll be in Austin, Texas. Yep, back on the road, racking up those Delta miles for a dinner at Olame Restaurant with Chef de Cuisine, Amanda Turner. It's part of our Sit With Us series with Open Table. Come solo or bring a friend or two. It's going to be an evening of great food and drink. The Cherry Bomb team and I will be there and we can't wait to meet you. Learn more at cherrybomb.com under the events tab. You can book your seat while you're there or book via the Open Table app. Search for Ola May in Austin and click their Experiences tab. I'm telling you, once you know about the Open Table Experiences tab, you are going to be hooked on finding other experiences in your town or any cities you happen to be visiting. Speaking of which, we're also hosting Sit With Us dinners in Los Angeles at AOC and San Francisco at Foreign Cinema. Our New York dinner at Zuzu's is already sold out, so don't delay on the other cities. See some of you soon. Now, let's check in with today's guest. Jamila Norman, welcome to Radio Cherry Bomb. Thank you for having me. Or I should say welcome back. It is so nice to be interviewing you in your hometown. Yeah, it is. I'm glad you guys are here in Atlanta. Yes, and this is our second time, so love being back. We are in the land of Patchwork City Farms. Why don't we start with a little chat about just what Patchwork City Farms is all about? Patchwork City Farms is a farm I dreamed up back in 2010 here in the city of Atlanta. It's a farm that exists on multiple patches of land. So hence the hence, farms, right? Right. Patchwork City Farms, you know, because we're in a city and they're not large tracts of land. But right now I have 1.2 acres that I own that I'm farming on. And then I've partnered with City of Atlanta to farm an adjacent kind of like quarter acre property. And then I have one other lot around the corner in partnership with a nonprofit that's another third of an acre. So kind of like collectively two acres of land that we're farming. But yeah, we grow all organically grown produce, sell it to families at local farmer's markets and farm-to-table restaurants. 
And we're just, you know, growing, building, expanding, and doing amazing things. So you are an urban farmer, and you are making a living from farming. Yes, I am making a living from farming. I have a team of two people, you know, two full-time equivalents, I'll say that. Like, there's three people working on a farm, but not everybody's full-time. And, yeah, that's what we do. We grow vegetables. We go to market. We host, you know, small events right now. We make a living growing food. Farming was a pivot for you. Wasn't what you set out to do. Farming was not what I set out to do. It definitely was a pivot. I started off as an environmental engineer. I wanted to, you know, save us from the pollution that we were all around us, all around us that, you know, the things that we were doing to the earth. So I was all into Greenpeace, all into like, you know, saving the world. Tell us what it means to be an environmental engineer. Yeah. So an environmental engineer is someone who is sort of creating and solving problems related to environmental things. So we're designing water, wastewater systems, pollution, abatement systems for, um, it can be any industry, you know, from power generation to food production to manufacturing. Everybody's either using water, they're putting something in the air, or they have to, like, deal with something in the earth. So landfills, I mean, all kinds of things. I worked for the state of Georgia on the compliance side. So I would have to go visit the industries and make sure that, you know, if they say we're cleaning the water before we're discharging that to the river, that they're actually cleaning it. Walk through their systems, walk through their manufacturing facilities. So I got to see how a million different things were made, which was really amazing, really cool. Not to use the obvious term, but when did the seeds start to get planted in your head about being a farmer? You know what? I didn't set out to be a farmer. I just set out to, like, grow food. (laughs) which is two different things, right? The seed was planted actually a super long time ago. I've always wanted to, like, retire with land, grow my own food, you know, just live off the land, right? Uh, My family came from agriculture in the Caribbean, so that seed was always there. When I moved back to Atlanta after having gone to school in Athens, Georgia, having my kids move back to the city for jobs because Athens is a small town, And I always loved Southwest Atlanta, which was a really big concentration of sort of like diversity, people of color, but it was also mixed income. Moved to this neighborhood, and one of the things that was very glaring was food choices were horrible, you know, and not really great healthy food choices. Lots of corner stores, a grocery store, but not the best, and lots of fast food. So I just was with couple other people, we just were like, well, let's grow food for our families, you know, and it just started off like that, like, you know, started off with a little plot in the local park in the neighborhood. So a community garden situation? Yeah, yeah. We started off just, you know, a small community garden that we started in a park, then partnered with a church in the neighborhood that, surprisingly enough, two blocks from my street had like three acres and they had an acre garden. So started working with Three acres is big in a city. Yeah. Well, you find out real quickly, Atlanta has a lot of big tracts of land. I am always blown away when I come to Atlanta. I'm so confused by the city and the layout. And I always think I'm in the suburbs because it's so green. It's so green. And Atlanta is not a city. Like a lot of cities up north, New York, Chicago, D.C., they are cities that were planned on a master grid. Atlanta started off really small and essentially All of the neighborhoods were former suburbs that kind of got incorporated into Atlanta over the years. And so it's a sprawling city and it's a city that is like there's no master planning, but it's always maintained a lot of its green space. You feel like you're in the suburbs and you're five minutes from downtown. 
And there are large tracts of land. That was two blocks from my house. The city has a lot of property. Churches have a lot of property. And they're just like big tracks. It'll be five acres, seven acres, three acres, you know, 10 acres, acre and a half. That's just all over the city. And Southwest Atlanta had a lot of just sort of green space. It's the least densely populated area of the city. And so there was just sort of like a lot of opportunity. So when I started sort of growing food and the first official contract that Patchwork got, we took over a one acre lot that another nonprofit had started and they sort of burnt themselves out because it was just all volunteer. We had started working with them, and we didn't want to see that disappear. So we're like, okay, we'll take it over. Petitioned the city. At that time, it was Atlanta Public School. And we took over that acre and started growing food on an acre and re- quickly realized there's a lot of food. I mean, I just incorporated because we needed to sell vegetables. And, and you, you have to have a business. You had your full-time job. Oh, yeah. I was a full-time engineer. Yeah, I was a full-time engineer raising three kids. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, an acre is a lot of food. And so we started going to market and started selling to restaurants. The farm and table scene in Atlanta was like really buzzing with all these, you know, beautiful restaurants that were out there and Hugh Atchison and just all of them doing amazing things in the city and looking for really good ingredients to build up their menus. And, you know, me with an engineer mind, if I'm going to do something, I'm going to like dive in and learn all about it and figure it out and, and, and all of that. And so... 2009 is sort of when I started that community garden. And 2010 was like, well, I guess we need to incorporate it, become a business. And at the time, it was me and this other young lady I met, Gathegu, also known as Cecilia. Her family was from Kenya. And so her grandparents were the last of her generation to grow food and, like, really be farmers. My great-grandparents and my great-grandparents were in the Caribbean. And so we met each other in the West End committed to food, committed to food sovereignty, all the things, you know, and we're like, we're going to grow food, we're going to save the hood, all the things. And yeah, we started Patchwork together and it just mushroomed out of control. (laughs) As good projects do. As good projects do. How did you wrestle it to the ground? Oh my God, I'm still wrestling. That's going to be a lifetime. And it's really just growing and becoming and adjusting. And there's always something to learn. There's always things you can incorporate. You learned a lot from the ladies at the church. I know that. Oh, yeah. I learned a lot. At the church was Good Shepherd Community Church was a woman by the name of Miss Lizzie. And I would, like, wake up in the morning, you know, get my kids ready, go to work, you know, drop them off school, go to work. She'd be in the garden early in the morning. It's like 7 in the morning or something like that. And then I would come home from work, and she was still there, working, doing whatever. And she was retired. And, I mean, she had to be in her 60s at the time. And so I would go volunteer with her Saturday, Sunday, like on the weekends. And for the longest, the pastor used to be like, you should come to church, Jamila. And one day I was like, you know what, pastor? I grew up Muslim, but at the time I'm just like, you know, I'm not really practicing anybody's religion, just, you know, spiritual. I was like, my church is out here in the garden, you know? And I was like, this is where I'm called to do my work. And and after that, he was like, you know what? I really respect that. That was it. That was part of the church, but I was in the garden. And I was like, if I'm in there, who's going to be growing the food? What was it that got so in your blood and in your heart that way? Mm-hmm. I, you know, it's like a Zen outside and you're you're growing and you're tending. I love the sun. I love the outdoors. I love fresh air. Don't like the bugs. You know, you could just go and go and go. And at first I used to be like, Miss Lizzie, you can't be out here like this all the time. But then I started joining her and it's like you literally get lost in the work. And then you're like, oh, my God, it's, you know, you have to like peel yourself up to go home. So I would come out and just learn from her. And she grew up on a 200 acre farm in South Georgia and just was like, this is what I know. 
and this is how I'm enjoying my retirement. And this gives me like, gives me purpose. It gives me something to do. This is what I know. This is what I can do. And so I just absorbed everything I could from her, learned from her, just kind of help them bring their things to market and just sort of close the circle for them from a financial standpoint, because they were pouring so much into the garden and really struggling to figure out how to kind of sustain it. So, you know, we helped each other in, in a bunch of different ways. When did you decide to make this your full-time job? You know what? The universe decides things for you sometimes. I had a four-year overlap of working as an engineer for the state and also, like, running Patchwork City Farms. And we incorporated in 2010. We took over that contract at the school. And then me and my business partner just sort of, we just were at it. So it was like holidays, weekends, after hours, you know, that's what, like, I would leave the farm. I go home, like... Okay, kids, here's some food, here's some, you know, run to the farm, do what I could until sunset. And I was just struggling because that's an engineer salary, full-time job, steady benefits, you know, weekends off, vacations. And I was just like the last two years, oh, my God, I got to figure out how to get out of here. And then the state started downsizing and just sort of laid engineers off. And I happened to be one of those engineers. And I was so happy. <laughs> Like, it was a little scary, but I was like, oh, my God, such a weight off. Because I couldn't make that decision for myself, you know, because you're, like, wrestling. You're like, I have kids. I've got a house. I got a mortgage. I got to figure all this out. It was the push you needed. It was the push I needed, and I'll never look back. And the state, like, walks you out when they let you go. And the guy was like, you're so chipper. <laughs> so happy. So it was the push I needed, and then I just went full force, you know, figuring out the farm. That happened, and then I still had challenges with, with the property where I was because I was leasing. It was public property. The neighborhood at this point now was changing. There was a lot of gentrification happening. People that were moving in felt like this public space was better utilized as something else, not as a farm. We were doing work with students. We were, I think at that point, we had gone to the Slow Food Conference in Italy. We were getting, like, written up, national recognition, and here was this local community of people who were like, eh, we don't think that's what you should be doing with this land. We need a parking lot. So city of Atlanta, they didn't renew the contract. We had a five-year contract, three guaranteed, and two one-year renewals. Um, and so we were able to secure the first renewal, but the second, they were like, oh, we just don't want to deal with the drama. And this is a big problem for young farmers. This is a big land. problem for young farmers. And it was sort of like at that time, in Atlanta, so much of sort of people moving from the burbs back into the city, trying to figure out like, oh, my God, you know, and it wasn't like an isolated case for patchwork. It was really happening to a lot of other farmers, young, older, black, white. It really didn't matter because at this point now land is valuable and people are like either calling in those empty lots that they were like, oh, I'm not doing anything with this. Now it's like, oh, this lot is valuable. I could put a house on here or I could put some apartments or something like that. So it was definitely a trend. And so I find myself having to move my farm in 30 days, which... How do you move a farm in 30 days? There's a days? lot of loss. There's just like, like a lot of things you have to just... You, you can't. I sold off some of the structures. You know, there were crops in the ground that just were like gone. I mean, you can't take a well with you. So there's all kinds of stuff that... it was It was not a... Happy time. And then I transitioned onto another property in the same neighborhood, a couple of minutes away in partnership with a, a nonprofit organization and quickly realized that relationship was, that was like, that was not a good fit. 
So before like really setting roots there, I think that was maybe six months, I was like, hey, you know what? Let me just sort of end this right now. And it was very clear to me that if I'm going to continue farming in Atlanta, like I have to buy property. Like I have to own it. I have to have control because, yeah, it takes a while to like really build a farm. You build in the soil. That's really your base and your biggest investment is that soil and then all the infrastructure around it. Your wash station, your storage, your well, your irrigation through the fields. Like can't just pick that up and, you know, take it to the next place. I think I was maybe a year and a half where I was not farming. I was looking for land. I was a landless farmer, as some of us were calling ourselves at the time. Was that a frustrating period, Jamila? You know what? It wasn't. It wasn't really frustrating. I also started a farmer's cooperative at the same time that I started the farm back in 2010. So I was working part-time under the co-op, supporting other Black farmers in Atlanta. I was also doing some farm consulting work for another farming organization in the city. And then one of my friends who was like, you know, I, I told him, like, I, I got I to find my own property. He said, Jamila, how's that property search going? Just like out of nowhere. And I'm like, oh, crap, I haven't really been doing it. I was like, let me jump on that. And so I just, like, Googled land for sale in Atlanta. And, you know, a couple of hits came up. I went and looked at some properties. I knew that I only had a certain amount of money. And I was like, look, I just this is all I can afford. Let me see what I can find. And then saw this property right around the corner from my house. It had no picture, but like I did little Google Maps and I saw it from above and I was like, oh, wait a minute. This is nice corner lot. No trees, which was really good because it's already cleared. It was like $18,000. And then like just little interesting things happened. The IRS was like, oh, we owe you money. And they sent me like a couple of thousand dollars and cashed out my retirement at the state and borrowed a couple other few thousand dollars. And lo and behold, I had $18,000 just at the moment that this thing happened. And it just all came out of nowhere and it lined up. And then I put in a contract maybe a week or two later after I did that initial search. And I, I'm, I'm telling you, if I had waited a day longer, it wouldn't have been available. Because as soon goose- as I put I just in... just got goosebumps. I know. Like when I tell you, I was like, oh my God, this is divine. Yeah. That's how I found the property. And that's the 1.2 acre property and that you is still the have 1. today. 1.2 acre property that I still have today. And now I get to dream. I get to plan. I get to build. I like have a long-term vision for it. It's just, it's farming. It's a different, you know, it's not the pressure of, am I going to be here? Should I make this investment? Does it make sense to invest this much on a piece of property that you don't own? You know, will it be here? Like, I'm like, this is mine. Right. Just the not having to deal with, can this be yanked out from can under me be, at exactly, any time? Exactly. So it just opened up a whole new world of possibility. And I just feel like I can breathe and just work and build. And everything that I put in it, I'm building equity for my family, for myself, for the community, and stability for the neighborhood and for the community and for people who depend on this food, you know, whether they're restaurants, businesses, homeowners, because when those farms disappear, people are driven back to the options that they have or the options they don't have. And so it's building that resiliency, not just for myself, but also for the community that depends on it. We'll be right back with today's guest. If you're listening right now, you know that Cherry Bomb has a podcast. But did you know we also have a print magazine? We do. And our latest issue is now available. Maybe you've never bought a magazine in your entire life. Or 
you're a print nerd like me. Either way, I'd love for you to check out our magazine. Each issue is thick and gorgeous and printed on lush paper at an independently owned family-run printer in Rhode Island. The pages are filled with great stories, profiles, features, photographs, and recipes. You can subscribe via cherrybomb.com. We have a variety of subscription options for you. If you want to buy copies of Cherry Bomb for your entire team, office, or class, we also have wholesale bundles available in packs of 5, 10, or 20. You can also pick up a copy of Cherry Bomb at your favorite bookstore, magazine shop, or culinary store. Places like Now Serving in Los Angeles, Set Patisserie in San Francisco, Jason Home in Chicago, Dear Mom in Indianapolis, and Golden Fig Fine Foods in St. Paul, Minnesota. Happy reading, and thank you for supporting Cherry Bomb. You're famous for growing a whole rainbow of produce. Yeah. Tell us some of the things you grow. Oh, my God. So I go through my list every year of seeds, and I tell myself, Jamila, you have got to reduce the amount of things that you grow. But, like, literally it's like 80-something different fruits and vegetables over the season. And a lot of it is like, you know, if I grow carrots, I'll grow yellow carrots, orange carrots, red carrots. I grow beautiful, like, you know, things got to be beautiful, right? Vegetables are a hard sell. Well, you have so much style. I mean, yeah. hopefully people, maybe they watch your show, they've seen pictures of you in the magazine or something, but you are one of the most stylish farmers in all of America. Well, I mean, you know, I'm a farmer, but I'm also a lot of other things. Yeah, you got to be stylish and the food's got to be stylish. Yeah, and, and, I would you expect know, nothing less Right, and, and people shop with their eyes, so it's got to be beautiful, it's got to be enticing, and I just want to show the breadth and the variety of what's really available. Because, I mean, you know, you go to the grocery store and the options, like, it's it's orange carrots. And that's what you think carrots are. And actually, carrots originally weren't orange. And so that we bred carrots to be orange. But, you know, they come in a rainbow of colors from white all the way down to, like, almost black. So you just want to bring variety. You want to bring things that are interesting. You want to bring things that are different. All the greens, all the carrots, beets radishes, turnips, eggplants, tons and tons of herbs because I love herbs and, you know, herbs just make things delicious. Strawberries, some of the best strawberries in Atlanta. I mean, I'm going to say it. In terms of income streams, you're at some of the farmer's markets. Mm -hmm. You do wholesale for Um, restaurants? Yeah, yeah. I do some, yeah, restaurant sales. Yeah, but not wholesale to like grocery stores or anything like that. Got it. Yeah. So restaurants, do you do CSA boxes? I used to do CSA boxes, but I don't anymore. What we were doing, and we'll probably pick back up again, we were doing like weekly farm baskets. So that way people were getting a little bit too fatigued with CSAs. Like, oh, my God, here's more vegetables again. What do I do with it? And so it just gives people a little bit more flexibility. of just like, hey, this is what we have for the week. If you like it, get it. You know, if you don't, see me next week. So that was working really good. And it also really created more access because with CSAs, if you didn't have that full amount up front, it kind of kept a lot of people out. So when I, essentially, you're just breaking it out. So many more people within the community and the communities that I was aiming to serve were able to access. So that's so smart. I mean, who wouldn't want to do a CSA? But like you said, it's the money, it's the time. You know, you're not always cooking that much. And yeah. You don't want any food waste. Yeah, exactly. And then, you know, people like summer vacations happen when they go on a vacation and then they're like, oh, my God, I'm going on a vacation. Who's going to pick up my CSA box? Is that food going to get? You know, so it was just all the things. And just over the years of having doing it for so long, I just was like, how can I adjust to serve the people in the community that I'm in? Because, I mean, you know, I'm in the city, so it's like a very dynamic group of people that are shopping from me. 
So I think it really depends on sort of where you are in the community that you're, you have access to. You know, one model might work really well, but for me and the people that I was reaching, I was like, flexibility is what they needed. Tell us what farmer's markets you're at. So right now we're at the Piedmont Park and Oakhurst Farmer's Market. So both of those on Saturday at the same time, nine to one. So we just harvest really heavy, hit up two markets, and then we are off on Sundays. That is a big rule for you. Oh, my God. I, and I've had to develop that because for a good eight, nine years, anything that anybody, what are you doing? Like, oh, can we? Go? I'm on the farm. I'm at market. I'm on the farm. And so you work essentially Monday through Saturday. Then you're on market Sunday, and then, you know, you're back at it. And so it was like always on the farm, missing out on so many things. And I mean, definitely the cadence of a farm, you you can't be at everything. But also I was like, you know, life, my friends, my family, things are just going by and I'm missing out. It's like having a restaurant. It's like having, exactly. And you're like, oh my goodness, you know, like food. I mean, when people like when it's raining, oh my God, I'm on the farm. (laughs) We can't stop growing. Just because the weather's a little bit bad or it's a too hot. Oh, it's too hot to be outside. You got to put on your hat and you sweat that day when you're working. We have to be there. We have to be there. And also just wanting to build in some sense of like rest and refuge. Like you'll wear yourself out, wear your body out. And so I was like, I have to build it in that we have a day of rest. And then Mondays are like paperwork. Got to take some time, like do paperwork, answer the emails, do this, you know, all that planning. So we generally work Tuesday through Friday and then go to market on Saturdays. So if anyone has a great opportunity for you, send that email on a Monday. Send that email on a Monday. And I try to really schedule a lot of my meetings and things like that. But yeah, Mondays, man, you can get me. Now we know. Yeah. I'm going to plan all all our Jamila asks around that. (laughs) Do the restaurants ask you to grow anything specific? You know, not some. No, not yet. Mm -mm. And I've definitely like offered restaurants like if there's anything you're looking for, definitely let me know. It does take a lot of pre-planning because some crops you're a year out. People don't realize like how much time planning and just goes into certain crops. So like even my strawberries, you know, they get planted in November, December. We have to order them in July. Oh, a whole year ahead. Yeah. Yeah. We have to. So it's almost time to start ordering strawberries, garlic. Onion, like we order them now, we plant them in the fall, they make it through the winter, they start kind of growing leaves early spring, and then by about end of May, beginning of June, you harvest, they're in for six, seven weeks, and they're done. So if somebody wants like, oh my God, you know, somebody asks, I want alpine strawberries, which are these white strawberries, delicious. It's almost like a year ahead that you have to be like, oh, this is something that we want. So there is a lot of pre-planning. Now, there are some crops that I can grow in like 30 days. So somebody's like, oh, we're looking for some microgreens or we're looking for some baby greens, things like that. Some different types of radishes. Yeah, we can do that in a month, turn around, like order the seeds, get it going. But depending on the crop. Yeah. So generally, a lot of the restaurants are just like they're really working with what's available and just making the best. And I, and I try to always have like a big variety so that they have a lot to pull from. And then there is Mother Nature, who doesn't always cooperate. And we can't really blame Mother Nature because we've been messing up. You had a tough time earlier this year. Yeah, tough time earlier this year with a freeze, a deep, deep freeze at the end of, because it was December we had that freeze. And just across the state, you know, there was like 80, 90 percent crop loss. Say that again. People need to take that in. Yeah, like 80, 90 percent crop loss. Of course, we saw the forecast, the freeze is coming. And in Georgia, 
that type of freeze does not happen. You know, we have like 32 degrees is when regular freeze. And so we have our hoop houses. We covered all of our beds with the frost cloths. Those frost cloths, they give you like, you know, somewhere between, you know, depending on the variety, three to five degrees of freeze protection. So if it's 32 degrees, you know, it's freezing, it'll take you down to like maybe 28. But we were looking at double digits, it was like maybe 10 with a windshield factor of like negative 10. And it was sustained for multiple days. And so a lot of what we plan in the wintertime, they can handle, they can handle like a deep freeze. They can handle that. But it was the sustained nonstop at that temperature for an extended period of time. And it just was like too much. And that was actually like the second freeze that we'd had. So we had one before. It wasn't that hard. Most of the plants made it through. But then that last December freeze came through and it just was like devastating. And even the things that were covered up, the things that were in the tunnels, it just blew right through all of that. It's definitely an effect of climate change. When I started farming in Atlanta, I mean, it's a very different sort of weather pattern than now. We used to always have like a winter break because the winters were like, they were cold, but they were consistent. And so you would like put those last crops in at the end of fall and then you, your farm would be kind of like in a suspended state. And then you just wait till, you know, early spring when things start growing back up and then you start harvesting. So we would have the winners off, you know, and that'd be great. A lot of farmers would like go off for two weeks or a month and we'd be like, oh, my God, we're getting some sun somewhere. And then the winters started having, it would get cold and then it would get hot. So then you'd start getting crops that would come in during the winter. And then you're like, oh, crap. So we started having markets that went year round because we could no longer just sort of put the farm to rest. Then we have some winters where it was just not cold at all. It just stayed super warm. So then you're dealing with that and you're like, I guess this is good. But then like, I don't actually get to rest. And now we're having winters that are like crazy freezing cold. So now it's like oscillating between, is it a warm winter? Is it a hot winter? And warm winters are not good because they don't kill off the bugs. So you have like really tough bug pressure the next year. And super cold winters, you're just like, should I plant that crop? Should I not plant that crop? Is it going to make it? Is it not going to make it? So some of the crops I had to replant and they rebounded. Other crops, you're just like, the timing is just, it's not going to be good. It's going to be pushing into my spring season. It's going to be pushing into summertime and it's going to be taking up space. I'm a huge farmer's market mm-hmm. fan, as you know. I've noticed the seasons when things are ready is changing. Like mm-hmm. cherries came a lot earlier this yeah. year. The tomato season seems endless now. I feel like tomatoes come early and they're still in the farmer's markets in like November. Yeah. And it's probably because what's been happening is like farmers are realizing they're having to bring in more infrastructure. So we're having to put in more grow houses. And I mean, and that it, it's expensive. You know, I mean, I have a tunnel on my farm. It's 30 feet wide, 96 feet foot long, and that's average size. Materials and installs like $20,000, you know, just for that one. And, you know, you're having to do multiples of those. So it's becoming a lot more expensive for us to operate our farms because we have to get this type of infrastructure to protect your crops. But it does give you that opportunity to kind of bring things in earlier and have them go a little bit later. The peach crop this year, I think they lost 80, 90 percent of the peach crop, apple crop, blueberry crops in Georgia. And these are big, big ag items for the state. Just Georgia peaches alone. Yeah. So the the season is like there's a, there's a moment right now and it's not going to be much longer. 
And the peaches that survived are like really good. They're so good, you know. They're like, tough. They're t- I know, but like the flavor is amazing. But tough, then tough in spirit, not in tough. Taste. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Tough in spirit, and like they really develop the flavor. But yeah, in terms of like the availability, and so you know, sometimes we have to like explain to customers why this thing might not be here or there might not be as much because they're like. You guys are running out of peaches. It's like, well, we don't really have that many because most of them are gone. So the flowers bloom because you get a warm period in February. And they're like, oh, good, spring's here. And then the freeze come and takes them out. Fruit comes from a flower. So the flower first and then the fruit. And so if you lose most of the flowers, you've lost most of the fruit. The, the season is definitely shifting. Some things are benefiting from it and other things are not. Most people don't talk about TV as in being easy, but TV certainly sounds like it might be easier than farming. Hmm. I can work a whole day on a farm, physical labor, in the sun with the bugs. But yes, TV is exhausting. I'm not used to talking that much. It's a mental exhaustion. So like, you know, when I'm filming, it's like I'm on. You know, I have to be on and I'm with families and and I like go home and I am like, oh, oh. Over the years, it's definitely gotten much easier. So we have a rhythm now with the production team. We have the same camera crew. So, like, we have a rhythm now. But when we first started, oh, my God, I like, it took me a day to recoup. I was like, hats off to anybody in entertainment. That was an unexpected little gift that dropped in your lap. It did. It did. Because you weren't out there with big dreams no, of being on TV one day. Not at all. Not at all. Never in a million years would I have seen that as a career path for me. Yeah, I'm minding my business, just running a farm, doing the thing. And it's interesting because I don't know what was going on in the universe and TV world, but that was a third production company that reached out to me about doing something around farming and TV. The first one was like, they were looking for like kind of like a drama farm situation. And I was like, there's no, we love farming. It's a real farming Real farmhouse Right, like, yeah, the real farmers of Atlanta. You know, I mean, it's just like, yeah. I'm like, we love each other. We're a big community. We're all rooting for each other. So they were just kind of like, you know. And then the second one was like this company out of L.A. And they just were it was the end of the farm season, and I was just like, my mind was like, vacation is coming. And they would just ask me for too much, making me do too much work. I was like, dude, I'm leaving. I, I, I can't send you stuff. And then 2020 was coming, and we all thought it was a magical year. And these magical numbers, 2020, it's going to be the year of so many things. And I was like, 2020, my year of yes. You know, I was right, like, 2020 I'm, vision, yeah, all those things. It was all, I yeah. mean, we had all, I mean, my God, the hopes we had for what 2020 was going to be and then what 2020 actually became for us. And so it was like my year of yes. So, yeah, this other production company, they were based in Atlanta, women-led. It was like 15 minutes from my house. So it was like on the west side. And they reached out and they were like, hey, you know, we just wanted you to come in and have a small, just a little talk with us about an idea that we have. And I was like, okay, it's my year of yes. Let me say yes, right? And I went in and it was like real chill. It was just like me and you talking and the production companies, um, Eclipse Creative, and Jennifer Madar is the producer, one of the co-owners. And she just was like, yeah, so, you know, we're thinking about this idea. And we know this network that's getting ready to launch. And we kind of looked you up. I put together a whole pitch deck. Everything was in there. And the only thing she needed was just, like, talk to me and just see if I was interested. And I was like, you got to do your work. <laughs> 
was just like, I like, but uh, yeah, but I mean, it was just an easy conversation. And, you know, we just talked about, hey, and I was like, I didn't think this was going to really go anywhere. I'm like, sure. Yeah, you can pitch it. I mean, what could it hurt? And we just talked about a couple of different ideas of what the show could be. What is it that I would be comfortable doing? And at the time, I guess this was almost 10 years into my farming career, and one of the things I'd been getting was a lot of people reaching out, you know, helping them grow their own food, how to start their own farms, that kind of stuff. So I was like, well, this could be an opportunity if it does manifest for me to share knowledge with a large audience of people that I just really can't get to. So that's sort of like what I saw it as, like an opportunity to do that. So if it becomes a thing, great. I can share information with a lot of people and be like, hey, go check out the show. So, yeah, so she put together the pitch. She sent it up. As they say, the rest is history. It was just like, yes, 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 yes. It was like five rounds of yeses. And they didn't make you change the premise as it went through each round? You know, we submitted three premises. And then they came back with, okay, we like this one. Yeah, and and the one that sort of won out was like me helping families transition their yards. And, you know, one of the premises was like, okay, we follow you on your farm and like kind of the things that you're doing, helping families. And then the other one was like instructional videos about gardening. So we went with the family premise. And I think it fit with sort of the network and all the things that they're doing at Magnolia. She just kept calling back and was like, oh, my God, girl, we, we made it to round two. OK, we made it to round three. And I'm sitting here like, oh, yeah, well, whatever that means, because I'm just farming. And then they got the final round. And Jennifer tells people all the time, she's like, girl, we landed the show and then you disappeared for two weeks. I was like, I don't know. I was probably farming. They didn't send the email on a Monday. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I was like, what does that mean? You sold the show, you know, like, okay, cool. And she's like, we have to film. Right, like, so far this from your reality. Thing. So far from my reality. I have no idea what this world is. I'm like, uh-oh, what did I do? Well, congratulations. The name is so good, Homegrown. Mm-hmm. It's such a good show. But it must warm your heart on some level to be able to spread your values to a much bigger audience. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And then to get that feedback from people. So people, like, send me pictures of their gardens. Look what I did, Farmer Jay. You have a big project you're working on, and I want you to talk about it because you are trying to raise funds for it and maybe potentially looking for some partners to help with certain aspects of it. So tell us what you're up to. Yeah. So big dreams on this property that I have for the farm. So right now we're just running a farm and we're just selling produce, right? And over the years, I'm looking for opportunities to sort of build connection, create spaces for people to gather, learn workshops and get really hands-on. And so we at Patrick were embarking on this really big project of building the facilities to be able to do that on the farm. So people can come on the farm, we can have events, we can do workshops, we have a hospitality portion, an events portion, and just like really creating a space that is beautiful and engaging. And so I've got a team, my architects and engineers, we put together our plan We are the first people in Atlanta that are doing this farm development project. And it was a struggle working with the city to kind of get them to understand. But success, we were able to get our vision approved through zoning. So we got our zoning approval. And right now we're just building out our performa, putting together the final numbers, and we'll be fundraising. And it's around like, you know, two and a half million dollars that we'll need because it's going to be new build right now. Like I started off with a 1.2 acre patch of grass and building everything from the ground up. 
And yeah, and we're going to be looking for culinary and event partners, right? Because we want to do weddings, we want to do farm dinners, we want to do a lot of different workshops around storytelling and really food focus, you know, whether we're serving food, preparing food, learning how to engage and interact with food and telling stories around food, about food and the source and all the culture that comes with it. So 2.5 million. If anybody knows someone who can just write one check. One check would be amazing. But if it takes a few checks. It takes a few checks. And so, yeah, we'll be hopefully in about a month or so, we'll have our full pitch deck prepared and we'll be putting it out there. We'll be putting it out on the social media, on the website and like hitting up some key partners that we, you know, and some relationships we've cultivated in the Atlanta area. Let's go to a speed round so we can let you get to the farm and do what you love to do. I know. Okay, coffee or tea? What do you drink in the morning? Oh, my God. Coffee right now. But I always end the evening with tea. So I'm both. How do you take your coffee in the morning? Oat milk. What kind of tea do you drink at night? All kinds. I make a lot of tea blends because that's one of the things I'm working on. It's coming up with a, a blend of teas, patchwork branded. But yeah, like my family, tea is life. We drink tea for everything. So, Do you cook at home? Not as much as I used to, but I do. So like, yeah, if I'm like, okay, self-care moment, you know, like kind of towards the weekend, I'll be like, okay, I'm just making like a really nice big meal. What's your favorite kitchen tool? Probably just a wooden spoon, really. I mean, I mix bread with a wooden spoon. I like all kinds of things. Yeah, I'm just going to say that. I love a wooden spoon. Mm -hmm. What is always in your fridge? A lot of greens. From the farm. (laughs) Avocado, citrus, butter. What's a song that makes you smile? Nina Simone, New Day. So we always ask footwear of choice in the kitchen, but for you, footwear of choice on the farm. What do you wear? Okay. On the farm, you know, I'm always in like some kind of boot, tall, lightweight. Okay. Muck. I see a cute little wedge this on one, that boot. Yes. These are muck. I love muck boots. M-U-C-K? M-U-C-K. Okay. They're amazing. Even for like bad winters and stuff? Oh, yeah. Yeah. They go from sub-zero to like anybody who's farming for reals wear muck boots. And then in the kitchen... I usually have some slippers. Yeah, I got these slippers I bought in Greece. They're like wool and a leather bottom with a pom-pom. And I bought like 10 of them in all colors. And they <laughs> they were sound so cute. They are so cute. What is your favorite food movie? Water for Chocolate comes to mind. I don't oh, know that's why. a good one. It's a good one. I need to rewatch that. I haven't watched that in a long time. I know. All right, last question. If you had to be trapped on a desert island with one food celebrity, who would it be and why? Okay, I'm going to say Chef Digby. He is a chef from the Virgin Islands, and I met him in Italy during Slow Food Conference many years ago, and his food is amazing, and it's just like, it's a little bit of home. He's fun. Yeah, we're going to say that, because, like, it's island life, and we would know exactly what to do. I wouldn't be worried about you trapped on a desert island. (laughs) You would grow the food. The other person would do whatever. I'd be in the ocean getting the seafood, because that's my other love. I love seafood. Uh, Yeah, we'd be figuring it out. I'll say Chef Dibby. Jamila, thank you so much. You've been such a great friend, the Cherry Bomb, over the years. I can't thank you enough, and I'm so thrilled you're on the cover. Thank you. That's it for today's show. If you are a longtime listener or a new listener and you enjoyed this interview, I would love for you to subscribe to Radio Cherry Bomb on your favorite podcast platform. If you're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you listen, just click the little subscribe button and don't miss a single future episode. And thank you in advance. Special thanks to Open Table for sponsoring this episode of Radio Cherry Bomb and partnering with us on our four-city dinner series, Sit With Us. Visit cherrybomb.com backslash sit with us 
or look on OpenTable under Experiences to learn more about these special dinners this July in New York, Austin, L.A., and San Francisco. Our theme song is by the band Tra La La. Joseph Hazen is the studio engineer for Newsstand Studios. Hi, Joe. I'm happy to be back. Our producer is Catherine Baker. Our associate producer is Jenna Sadu. And our editorial assistant is London Crenshaw. Thanks for listening. You're the bomb.